Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based information to your pharmacy practice. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. You know, I work, uh, I split my time pretty much right down the middle between uh, an ICU and an internal medicine inpatient service. So I always feel the pull to, to, to help my palm care colleagues. So that's what we're going to talk about today. A very interesting study that looked at actually methylene blue for the treatment of septic shock. So uh, uh, an interesting paper that, that we're going to kind of go through today is a, a one done in Mexico. To give you some flavor for those of you who are not critical care, specialists are working in ICU, you know, methylene blue has has a kind of a long and kind of checkered history when it comes to treating septic shock. There are several case series that suggest that it actually uh, decreases pressure requirements. So you don't require so much norepinephrine and things along those lines. There has been studies that suggest it may improve other hard outcomes like, you know, time off the off the ventilator, time out of the ICU, things along the lines. But they're, they're small studies or case series. They didn't have good follow-up, all that sort of stuff. And they really, you know, weren't really followed up on. And you could say, well, maybe the reason for that is that, you know, nobody makes methylene blue, no, no name brand methylene blue exists. So, you know, yeah, it'd be hard to, to fund such a study. And as we've talked before, critical care studies are always difficult to do because of the, the numerous confounders that you have and the fact that, you, that, you know, you just have to have a gigantic sample size. And to do that, you have to have usually more than one ICU because, it, you know, a study will literally take a decade to, to recruit enough patients have the power to show a difference in, in, in an intervention if you've got it. So there's just a number of reasons why it's fraught to kind of do, especially um, mortality studies in the ICU. So this makes things kind of an, an interesting study. Um, and, and again, using methylene blue, uh, I've only used it, you know, maybe four or five times in 30 years of being a pharmacist. It's never worked in the times I've done it. Uh, it's usually considered the Hail Mary of Hail Marys and septic shock. You know, you know we, we tried everything. The patient's not doing well. They're on maximum pressure and their mean arterial pressures are still really low and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, again, it's kind of one of those the family wants to try everything. So again, we kind of throw this Hail Mary by giving methylene blue. I've never seen it work. Um, so it, so when I saw this study kind of cross my feeds about different studies, I was kind of really surprised. And, and we'll see what the study shows. It was done in Mexico. In the intro, I think they do a very nice job of explaining, you know, why methylene blue would work. One of the big things that happens, of course, is you have this, you know, distributive shock that leads to uh, endothelial dysfunction. And there's all sorts of, of chemicals that are involved with that. And of course, we target those chemicals, you know, by giving people norepinephrine or vasopressin, because that might be vasopressin deficient. Angiotensin 2 now, of course, is is, is uh, available. And, you know, there's there's emerging data suggesting that, you know, a significant number of patients may be angiotensin 2 deficient when they have septic shock. But in any event, one of the reasons why methylene blue might help is that it's, it's a specific inhibitor inhibitor of the inducible nitric oxide synthase enzyme. And then that blocks also the, the downstream enzyme that's soluble guanylate cyclase or SGC. And so the practical upshot of all that is that that leads to indirect repressor effects. When you're blocking inducible uh, nitric oxide synthase, that leads to actually basal regulation and basal constriction. And so that's why the theory is on methylene blue may act as a, as, as a, a blood pressure supporter because it has indirect pressure effects. Um, there some other stuff and you know theoretical benefits in animals that they find in studies but but that really is kind of the the, the thing is that it's kind of a not direct pressure but basically uh, an indirect pressure effect that helps support blood pressure in these patients and there is some evidence suggesting that that it, uh, in other countries is used uh, as vasoplegia uh, during uh, cardiopulmonary bypass 
um, which is kind of like septic shock. Of course, you have this vasodilatory shock. But again, bottom line is that is that the evidence has always been poor, and the only reason I've I've ever seen it or I've ever personally used it is when we've you know we've literally tried everything else, and uh, the, the family just wants everything done, and so we we this is kind of our last again hail mary of hail mary sort of thing. So it is worth noting that you know despite all our advances, the mortality for septic shock really hasn't budged in all the time I've been a pharmacist. You know, it, it's it's still around 40% for septic shock. And of course, you know, the, the more and longer you're on pressors, the worse the mortality associated with it. And, and that just kind of makes sense. Also, it's worth noting that, you know, our pressors are not benign medications. Norepinephrine in particular uh, has all sorts of problems, including tachyarrhythmias and myocardial dysfunction and, and peripheral ischemia. And people I've seen definitely people with digital ulcers and stuff like that. So, you know, again, if, you know, anything we could do that might help, you know, decrease norepinephrine use and support people's blood pressure that's relatively safe may be a really important uh, intervention. So that's kind of where the study came from. It is an investigator-initiated parallel double-blind randomized control trial. We'll talk about the double-blind part at, at an academic reference center in Mexico in an, in an NMICU there. They included patients over age 18. They had septic shock that was defined by the sepsis-3 criteria. So that's kind of the standard criteria. And uh, again, what that means is a highly suspected or confirmed infection that they had to be on at least norepinephrine to maintain a mean arterial pressure greater than 65, which is, is the, the target that we use according to their surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, and a serum lactative greater than two after adequate fluid resuscitation. So they excluded a number of patients, uh, probably the biggest one, which I think is 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 a, a kind of pr a troublesome, is they exclude people at a high probability of death within 48 hours. Well, the problem, of course, is that you know many patients with septic shock have a high probability of death within 48 hours. So one wonders, you know, how, how were the investigators able to, to make that determination. Now, you know, someone comes in and they have, you know, you know, it's trauma or something. They have, you know, catastrophic in, in, um, injuries or something like that. I can understand that. But, uh, you know, having, again, worked in an ICU for a long time, I can tell you that it's sometimes very difficult to prognosticate, you know, who is going to, you know, turn the corner and do better. So that's, a, I think, one of the big strikes of this study is, is that exclusion criteria makes it kind of difficult to know exactly who they included and excluded. They also excluded other types of shock, including hemorrhagic or, or, or cardiogenic shock. Uh, they excluded burns patients, patients who are pregnant, patients who had a G6PD deficiency that's known because you can't use methylene blue in those patients, people who had allergies to food dye, which makes sense, and a recent intake of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. There is some minor evidence to suggest that may, there may be a problem between the two, but again, there's so little data that I think it's, it's, it's really difficult to do. It is worth noting that they did the study in, uh, the, in when, the, when the pandemic hit, and so uh, their data safety monitoring board basically shut them down during that period. So they were unable to continue the study. And I mean, one understands why. What if methylene blue was harmful to, to COVID patients? We had no idea. So I, that certainly makes sense. Patients were assigned then to the methylene blue group, which received an IV infusion of 100 milligrams methylene blue and 500 of NS over six hours, once daily for a total of three doses. So basically 300 milligrams of methylene blue. Patients assigned to the control group received the same dose of 500 mils, but just without the methylene blue. So basically they got three doses of 500 mils of saline compared to three doses of methylene blue each and 500 mils of saline. They did cover the infusion bags, which is nice. 
<laughs> but I, you have to really argue that that the study was not blinded because, again, as anyone will tell you, uh, if you've received that methylene blue on accident, and, and when I was in pharmacy school, that was not an unusual, uh, a practical joke to play on people. You'd stick a little methylene blue in there and pop or something, and then they were they were peeing blue for several days afterwards, and they, you know, oh, you got me, you know, sort of thing. Uh, anyone will tell you that yeah, anyone who gets methylene blue will definitely pee blue, and it's pretty bright blue, and the lines would be blue too. So I again, I I commend them for at least you know taking a stab at trying to blind things, but in, in all honesty, the study was not blinded. You know, so I, I think you just have to have to have to come to terms with that. Uh, fluid resuscitation in these patients was done, and interestingly, and 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 you know they use several methods to us to assess uh, a fluid status. Again, as someone who's practiced in an ICU a long time, this is really more art than science. Um, there's a number of different ways you can try to assess whether the person's fluid up or fluid down. Um, what they used was a passive leg raising, which is has been used is used very commonly in a lot of places. Uh, they looked at uh, arterial blood pressure variation. They looked at tidal volume changes in patients from mechanical ventilation and respiratory variation of carotid peak flow velocity, which I've never seen or heard before. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but again, it's worth noting that different places do way different ways to assess fluids, fluid status. And that really changes from, from place to place around the world. Uh, uh, point of care ultrasound is, is playing a bigger, bigger role in this. And, and, and actually we're using POCUS not infrequently in our patients to try to assess uh, a fluid status as well. So it's, it's, you know, I think these are all reasonable ways to do that, but it is worth noting that, you know, how they assessed the patient had been completely fluid resuscitated before they started pressers. You know, you may not get the same numbers if you're using different methods for doing that. They had to be on a norepinephrine dose of 0.25 mics per kilogram per minute. And then they were started basically. And then they, and then at the same time, adjunctive vasopressin was started at the standard 0.03 units per, per minute, but, you know, not adjusted as, as we all know. All these patients also received stress dose steroids at 200 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone. And in their study, basically with after six hours of being off pressers, they stopped them. Um, again, that varies tremendously. The dose of steroid and how long you have on varies tremendously from, from unit to unit. And in my unit, we usually wait till 24 hours after they're off pressers. And then we usually stop their stop the, the stress steroids usually without a taper. So uh, like many ICUs, it was a nurse-led uh, tapering protocol and adjustment protocol. And that's true in almost every hospital I've ever heard of or I've ever worked at, where basically, you know, there there may be a protocol, but the nurses basically, since they're there at the bedside, are able to, you know, expertly adjust the, the doses of norepinephrine and, and other pressors to target a map of 65. In this study, they, they didn't target a map of between 65 and 75, which again is a little bit different than I than I would say uh, I've seen most other places. Uh, they did progressively withdraw both uh, pressors and they did this kind of weird, you know, teeny, teeny weeny, itsy bitsy withdrawal of vasopressin, but uh, they did try to, to, to discontinue norepinephrine first, which again is a little bit backwards to, to a lot of the hospitals. Usually they back off vasopressin first and then norepinephrine. Patients were all followed till 28 days after enrollment, and the primary outcome was discontinuation of all vasopressors for at least 48 consecutive hours. They had numerous secondary outcomes, including vasopressor-free days at 28 days, all-cause mortality at 28 days, serum lactate levels, days on the mechanical ventilator, length of stay in the ICU and hospital, and the change in serum, creatinine, bilirubin, and other labs to make sure there was anything really weird going on. It is worth noting that one of the things they did not look at as an outcome was 48 or 72-hour mortality. You know, And again, with a new intervention like this, you'd probably want a, an assessment of, of short-term mortality 
right? They knew that they were not going to have the power to show a difference in mortality of 28 days. There's, you know, there's just no way, again, as I said before, a single uh, center can have those kind of numbers of patients to, to do that. So, you know, it would have been a nice, I think, as a safety outcome to say, okay, well, you know, the good news is that they got off pressors more quickly in the, in the, in the uh, methylene blue arm. The bad news is that they more, they died more frequently in 48 hours. So, I, you know, that's the reason they got off their, their vasopressors. So, you know, I, that, that is a little troublesome to me that, that they didn't, they didn't look at a short-term mortality outcome pretty much as a safety issue. Uh, it is worth, uh, it's, it's good news, especially after the last few weeks we've been doing uh, um, uh, this podcast, that the stats were refreshingly straightforward. So, you know, nothing weird, nothing unusual. Uh, they basically did a standard sample size where they felt that they that they needed uh, about 92 patients in total, and 46 in each group, and all the statistical tests I've heard of before. <laughs> So that was kind of nice. They actually used Chi-Square and Fisher Exact test and Man Whitney U test. I mean, you know, all the kind of tests that, that I've seen and loved over, over the many, many years. So that's that that was kind of good to hear. So what do they find in the study and what were kind of the patients like and what can we draw from this study? I think we will and we'll try and answer all those questions right after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing, and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we're back talking about this study from Mexico, uh, looking at methylene blue in septic shock patients, again, receiving three days of 100 mils of, of methylene blue compared to placebo. Taking a look at the baseline characteristics, they're pretty much what you'd, I think, expect to see. They were, I think, a little bit younger patients. The, the median age was 46 or 47 in both groups. So to me, that's, again, just my gestalt, a little bit younger than I would see. Uh, the vast majority of these patients either had pneumonia or interabdominal infections as the source of their sepsis. Again, not, not, not unusual, but I, you know, there were only 9% of patients in each group had urinary tract infections, which again, I see quite a bit. They received, you know, similar fluid loads between the two groups, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, these were sick patients. Uh, they, they, the median norepinephrine dose was 0.45. So, I mean, you know, I was kind of always thought really anything above 0.15 mics per kilogram per minute is high dose norepinephrine and certainly above two. And these guys were on pretty, pretty stiff doses of norepinephrine in both groups. Almost all of them were on vasopressin, as you might imagine. Uh, over 80% of both groups were mechanically ventilated. And interestingly, the, the vast majority of them had ARDS. Um, um, 80% in the methylene brew group and 70% in the control group had, had, had met criteria for ARDS, which again is, is not unheard of. Certainly ARDS is, is, is part and parcel of septic shock, but uh, that number is, is just from my gestalt higher than I see in, in, in my ICU. None of them at baseline really had terrible renal dysfunction or hepatic dysfunction. I'm sure a lot of that changed as, as the study went on. And then finally, uh, you know, two of the standard uh, scoring systems we use to, to measure the acuity and, and risk of mortality in septic shock patients are the SOFA uh, criteria and the Apache 2 scores, and both of them were very high. Uh, the, the median SOFA score was 10, and the median Apache 2 score was 23. And remember, 24 is the break point at which mortality just totally jumps up. So these were super sick patients. There's no doubt about it. Um, um, you know, these were patients who had severe septic shock that, if I had to take a wild guess, had over 50% mortality. So, so you know, 
you know, they didn't look at, at, at you know, patients who required just a whiff of norepinephrine. They, uh, these were definitely a, a very, very sick patient. So the other piece that's interesting is that the, the median time that these patients were on total uh, uh, vasopressors was just incredibly long. You know, most of these patients were, were on, on pressors for days and days. And again, that's just not something I see in, in my ICU. Of course, we have the patients who with, with bad septic shock are on, on, vas on uh, vasopressors for most multiple days. But in most cases, if we, if they turn around quickly, um, and many patients do, they're usually on pressors for 24, 36 hours, and we're usually able to get them off pressors and then hopefully out of the ICU. So uh, it is worth noting that, 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 again, these patients must have been fairly sick because they were all on pressors for a very long time. So that, that kind of gets you to where the primary outcome was. The time to complete vasopressor discontinuation was 69 hours in the, in the methylene blue group and 94 hours in the control group. So again, you know, that means that, that, uh, that the median um, a, a, a time to get people off of vasopressin in the control group was almost four days. And so again, much longer than, than has been my experience. But bottom line was that uh, there was a significant drop in, in time to dis, uh, uh, vasopressor discontinuation between uh, uh, patients on methylene blue and patients in the control group. Uh, they found that that all the pressors, particularly norepinephrine, uh, dose requirement decreased very pronouncedly in the first four days. That's what you kind of expect. Patients in the methylene blue group had one more day uh, median of vasopressor free days at day 28. Uh, they had a lower cumulative fluid balance by about 750 mils. They also had a shorter ICU length of stay by 1.5 days. And you would expect that certainly in my ICU. Uh, that's one of the things that keeps people in the ICU is they have to be on vasopressors once they're off. If they're hemodynamically stable and look okay, we, we try to transfer them to the floor. Um, they had a shorter uh, overall hospital length of stay by 2.7 days as well. They did do a proportional hazard analysis and then found the hazard ratio for shock reversal uh, of 2.7. So again, 270% more likely to, to reverse shock in the, in, in the um, methylene blue goo at 28 days. They found that mortality in the, in, at, at uh, 28 days was similar between the two. So at, at day 28, there was no difference in mortality. But as I said before, it really would have been, I think, important in this underpowered study uh, to look as a safety measure, look at or, or, or early mortality. It's also worth noting that even if you, if you count the, uh, the stopping of the study for the pandemic, it took them about six years to, to recruit these 92 patients. So again, showing again how, how difficult it is to do uh, ICU uh, studies in, in septic shock. So again, the question you have to ask is, okay, well, you know, the numbers looked better, right? We got people off pressors quick, quicker. Does that mean it actually helps patients or just fixes numbers? And you can kind of debate that one way or another. It is worth noting that we have very little data showing that any vasopressor actually improves mortality in septic shock. Um, most of the, of the big studies that looked at norepinephrine, the VAST study that looked at, at, at vasopressin, and the ethos 3 study that looked at, at angiotensin 2, none of them were designed to look for mortality. They were really designed to look for getting people off of pressors or reversing shock. And all of them found that, basically, that you can reverse shock with them. But we really don't know the long-term uh, uh, mortality benefits of any, any pressor. So before you jump all over methylene blue in the study and say, well, you know, they didn't look any hard outcomes, it's difficult to do hard outcome studies. And we certainly use interventions in the ICU all the time for septic shock that don't have not shown a hard mortality benefit in, in randomized control trials. So just kind of keep that in mind. But, but again, it, it is something that should be discussed. They, in their discussion, talk about, you know, some of these previous case series in small, in small studies and say, you know, they basically found kind of similar numbers. Uh, they also found uh, improvement, especially in ARDS. They, they found some improvement. So again, with all these patients having ARDS, one wonders if the benefit of methylene blue has as much to do with 
with with its anti-inflammatory effects in patients with with uh, ARDS as it does anything else. Basically, they I think do a very good job of talking about their own limitations. They they note that again, it took quite a, a while to do the study, even with the COVID pandemic kind of blocking them continuing the study. Uh, it took it took quite a while to 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 enroll about ninety patients. But however, they say well you know you know there wasn't any big studies or anything that came out you know during the pandemic that radically changed how we how we treat septic shock, which is I think largely true. They did follow uh, you know 30 mils per kilogram of IV crystalloids. Uh, they did not talk in the study at all about whether they you know have gone with to what almost everybody else has gone to, which is using lactated ringers versus normal saline uh, and to decrease the incidence of acute kidney injury. They did use IV corticosteroids in all patients, um, you know, which again, I, you know, since the new guidelines have come out, I think is, is reasonable to do in most patients. They didn't measure a lot of the the you know the weirdo cytokine or or, or I you know nitric oxide levels or anything like that, which I mean, you know, that, that that would be nice from an academic perspective, but you know, let's face it, you know, in the real world, we're not going to do that. So it's an interesting idea, but that's that's really not what we're going to do. And you know, to their credit, they note that blinding was was essentially impossible, and and so they they do note that uh, that a bias assessment of vasopressors by the clinicians can't be ruled out because again, this was an initiate uh, investigator initiated study, so so the investigators were the ICU physicians, and you know, again, you know, they're the ones who are making the call about about whether patients are improving or not. So you know, that is I think an important limitation of the trial. So it a very interesting study. I think the key here is you know they were trying to trying to figure out you know instead of making methylene blue the hail mary of hail marys in septic shock should we use it way earlier and um, I think they that they have some intriguing information here um, but I think that given the number of limitations the, the very small number of patients and some other things again the lack of blinding stuff like that I'm not really sure this is ready for prime time yet and you know as as you know, most critical care clinicians will tell you uh, anyone who anyone who's kind of a veteran pulmonary care clinician will tell you that that uh, we've been burned before <laughs> many times and uh, you know again it's one of those you know fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me sort of things and so you know uh, uh, the, the treatment of septic shock has kind of a long and, and and not good history where we've you know seen patients and we've kind of jumped all over the first study that that showed a benefit and then follow-up studies actually either didn't show a benefit or showed harm and so even if the study were larger even if the study you know had a lot of its issues dealt with I'm, I'm not sure that uh, a lot of critical care clinicians would be all, you know, ready to jump all over the study and say, hey, well, the very next patient I have on septic shock, we're going to do this. So, I, you know, I think what I kind of take away from this is, is that, you know, the, traditionally when we use, if you even use methylene blue, it's always too late. By, by the time you're thinking of it, it's it, that patient has probably reached the point of no return. And so you're probably not going to see a whole lot of benefit. Um, I, 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 you could argue that if you had a patient who met the criteria of the study and was rapidly progressing, right? So within, you know, six hours, they had gone from okay to being on high dose norepinephrine, high dose vasopressin, high dose angiotensin two, and they're getting worse and worse and worse, you know, rather than waiting until an hour before they pass, can you use it a little bit sooner? That's something I think you would consider maybe uh, in these patients based on the study. Uh, but uh, to make it like, you know, part of an order set for septic shock or, or make it routine use, I, I just don't think we're ready for prime time on that. But it does argue, will we ever get that kind of study, right? You know, I mean, it would have to be, again, a multi-center gigantic study, almost certainly funded by a Fed, by, you know, a government, a federal government, like this one in the U.S., it would have to be kind of an NIH or something like that funded study. And uh, until that until that study is done, I, I think that most clinicians are going to kind of shy away from, from early use of ethylene blue. 
but we'll see. You know, I mean, this is a rapidly changing area of, of critical care medicine. And certainly one of the big things that we have multiple studies ongoing now taking a look at is a responder rate. And, and we know that, you know, especially for, for drugs like basopressin and angiotensin 2, you know, and norepinephrine 2, there's, there, there's a percentage of patients who respond really rapidly to them, and then everybody else doesn't, you know, and, and you know, uh, we're really trying to figure out, you know, is there a way we can figure that out right out of the gate, right? Because, you know, every hour you delay in septic shock, every hour mean arterial pressure is below 65, it worsens outcomes. So, you know, if, if we can figure out in the first two hours, okay, patient A is going to respond to norepinephrine, patient B is going to respond to basopressin, patient C is going to respond to angiotensin 2, and that should be our first pressure in those patients. Um, the, the theory is, is that should really, really improve outcomes. Now, again, you know, it remains to be seen in, in clinical trials, but that is, it's actually one of the, the, the big areas of investigation right now in, in critical care medicine is, is trying to find markers or, or barring that doing kind of a rapid cycling, you know, two hours of norepinephrine, if that doesn't work, quickly switch more to basopressin. If that doesn't work in a couple hours, quickly switch more to angiotensin two, instead of, well, you know, they've been on norepinephrine for seven or eight hours and we just met, we just really can't seem to get their, their uh, map above 65. It's been six or seven or eight hours. Now we had basopressin and kind of do the same thing. And by the time you do get the patient to a, a map of a 65 for a long period of time, it's been 24 hours. And again, all those hours that you're waiting and it worsens outcomes. So where would methylene blue uh, a place in that? It's, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, it would definitely freak, I think, a lot, of, uh, a lot of nurses out to see half of their patients with the blue P all the time. It would be certainly interesting when we're on rounds and taking a look at the, at the uh, Foley catheter bags that, you know, we'd have a, a right, right away or something. Uh, as many of these patients are intubated on propofol and propofol uh, can cause your urine to turn kind of a neon green. We could have all the colors of the rainbow in the ICU, really. So, so anyway, bottom line is, yeah, we'll, we'll see where we go, but not ready for prime time, in my opinion. So that's it for this week of, of Game Changers. Thanks for listening again. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.